Welcome to the Weekly Standard Update. I'm your host, Michael Graham, with us, the editor of the Weekly Standard, Bill Crystal. Bill, welcome. Thanks, Michael. Good to be with you again. I have to tell you, I'm always delighted when my old hometown of Washington, D.C., there are peals of laughter bursting through the halls of Congress. But I understand this was not joyous laughter. Uh, Fred Barnes reports. By the way, we ought to get Fred to do one of these one of these uh, podcast I'll, things. I'll get him on, on the stick here. No, he'd love to do it, I'm sure. And, uh, uh, we'll, we'll have to make this uh, uh, spread the wealth here and not just have... Uh, me subject to your intense grilling. <laughs> yes, very tough, tough questions. But anyway, but Fred Fred points out that uh, the Senate, Senate uh, Republican leader Mitch McConnell quote burst into laughter close quote when Tim Geithner laid out the Obama plan. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that was the serious Obama offer, and you know, it's the beginning of bargaining. I think the Republicans, though, in addition to bursting into laughter, should lay out their counter plan. I mean, they're saying, "Well, we're waiting for President Obama to step forward with a serious offer." But mm-hmm. honestly, I think from a political point of view, we can sit here and tell each other, "Oh, that's ridiculous." But if you're a normal voter looking up, or just a citizen, say, "Well, what kind of what's the Republican alternative for avoiding the fiscal cliff?" Either the Republican should be in the position of saying, "Well, we don't think the cliff's a real cliff, and let's just go ahead with sequester," but that would let everyone's taxes go up. Or they should lay on the table something more concrete. I honestly don't think they're handling this. I think they're, you know, in the internal conservative world, they're all, everyone's patting each other on the back and saying, huh, doesn't Obama look silly? But for the outer world, what's the right. Republican counteroffer? A very good point. The uh, Those infamous low-information voters that we all discovered on Election Day, who I think, by the way, should be Time Magazine's Person of the Year. But um, So let me ask you about that. Why, what about the notion of saying we have a plan? It's the Ryan plan. And we put put it out a year and a half ago, Mr. President. You insulted Congressman Ryan when he presented it. You called it un-American. It's a plan. It's on the table. There it is. Why not that? Well, I agree. And then on the tax side, presumably Republicans would be in favor of the current tax rates. I mean, there's a short-term issue and a longer-term issue. Right. Maybe you want to separate them a little more. But however, they do, they do it tactically, and there are a million ways to sort of slice this thing up. I think a concrete offer, either from McConnell or from Boehner, uh, would be helpful. Now, of course, it's not so easy to set out a concrete offer, but Banner's conference doesn't all agree with each other. It's easier to be the president than to be the Speaker of the House in that respect. But I do think it's, if the president does have a negotiating advantage, he can always say, well, what's wrong with this? And then the Republicans say, well, that's silly. But uh, I think it'd be worth actually trying to say, no, look, here's, here's our offer. Let's just do this to avoid the tax increases. Uh, the, how do you think the perception is of the Republicans uh, out in the real world? You said that conservatives are patting each other on the back. And I have to tell you, I, this notion of adding more stimulus spending, adding more spending than you're getting in tax hikes as part of solving the deficit, seems to me laughable on its face. But as you pointed out, that's, that's the kind of the echo chamber. You've been talking to some prominent or some exciting new Republicans. What are they saying? I mean, just as it happens, this past week in Washington, there have been a couple of conferences I was involved in. Ted Cruz spoke last night. I was the master of ceremonies at the, the American Principles Project, uh, first annual dinner, and then also the Foreign Policy Initiative, with which I'm associated, had a very good conference with lots of several members of Congress, Kelly Ayotte, uh, Marco Rubio, the newly elected congressman from Arkansas, Tom Cotton, Adam Kinzinger, second-term congressman from Illinois, uh, various panels and dinners and, and the like. The good news is if you're a Republican in Washington, God, there are a lot of interesting younger members. Uh, you have people showing up, people who've been here a couple of years, who are impressive and serious and lively and a good populist streak, I think, which is so important for the Republican Party. So in a way, you, you turn away from the Romney campaign and the, and the minor disaster that was 2012, and you look <laughs> forward and you get cheered up. But I think if you talk to these members, honestly, they're worried about what voters out there think about the Republican Party. They think they did fine in, <coughs> excuse me, in their particular races, 
But if you ask them, what do you think? What, what do your constituents think of the National Republican Party? Ted Cruz said this last night. He said they think of the Republican Party and they think uh, nothing much to say, backward-looking, not really in touch, not not a forward reformist agenda. Right. So I, I think nothing is more important than over the next six, twelve months. Republicans to pivot away from uh, rehashing 2012 and relitigating the Bush years right. and relitigating uh, what happened over the last 5, 10, 20 years and really saying this is the agenda going forward at the state level and the national level in terms of economic policy on the international level. And being willing to do some internal debate, have internal debates, and do some fresh thinking. I mean, what is the Republican position on monetary policy? What is the Republican position on Dodd-Frank? Everyone hates it. Romney campaigned against it. Republicans controlled the House the last two years. They didn't introduce an alternative piece of legislation to regulate Wall Street. I take it we all think there has to be some regulatory structure. So what is the Republican proposal? Now, one reason you don't get a Republican proposal is, well, gee, we don't all agree. Republicans don't all agree. Conservatives don't all agree. That's fine. I'd prefer for there to be two or three Republican pieces of legislation to none. In the late 70s, there was the Kemp tax cut. There were other Republican versions of what the right economic policy was. Better to have a debate among positive proposals than to paralyze yourself by saying, well, gee, we don't quite know what we all think, and some of our guys are uncomfortable if it's too populist, and some of our guys are are uncomfortable if it's too pro-Wall Street, so uh, let's just do nothing. I think that's actually sort of a recipe for paralysis, and I really hope these younger members, the Mike Lees, the Ted Cruz's, the Marco Rubio's, uh, the Tom Cotton's, really go ahead and sort of don't worry too much about getting everyone to sign off before they advance something. But the the challenge for Marco Rubio is that the Republican brand has been positioned by nonstop uh, attacks and shaping in, in, in both the media and the Democrats, so that when Marco Rubio shows up in Iowa, he literally gets asked the question, how old is the earth? In other words, you have this, uh, this uh, social, some people call it social issues, some people call it evangelical issues, but these issues of abortion, et cetera, that the media are going to throw up in front of any Republican. They're never going to get to Dodd-Frank because they're going to be stuck at, uh, uh, you know, abortion pills and, you know, what do you do about rape? No, well, fair enough, but I think the best way to beat that is to have something. As you, if you drive a debate on economic policy or on, uh, you know, why are we contributing so much money to the U.N. when the U.N. is busy uh, making Israel-Palestinian reconciliation harder, not easier, if you, if you give them something else, to, if you force them, in a sense, to confront other uh, policies one's putting forward, I think that's a better alternative then sort of shrinking away, and then you then you are in the defensive. I right. mean, if if you're making use, it's a little harder for them to divert you to discussion of how old the Earth is. So, right. um, I, I, you know, I I think the same could have been said in the late 70s. Gee, if every time a Republican shows up, he gets asked about Watergate or asked about the Ford administration or asked about uh, detente or whatever the you know the social issues right. were big then too, and that's fine. But but in fact, people had to talk about what Ronald Reagan and Jack Kemp and others were were proposing because it was dramatic, it was interesting, it would challenge the conventional wisdom. It was unorthodox. It challenged some Republicans, some Republican constituencies. Right. So I mean, it's easy for me to sit here and say this. It's harder to do it if you're Marco Rubio <laughs> or, or or Paul Ryan, sure. who's back in the House, or, or Kelly Ayotte, or all these other uh, impressive young men and women But I in the House and the Senate. But I think that's really the task over the next year. I, and I agree completely when I get asked to give speeches, I give this speech called The Envelope versus the iPhone, which is, I think, the Republican and conservative movement should be based around the values of the uh, of the iPhone and of the people who use it, who have very high expectations of customer service and have no patience for bureaucracy and expect their money to be handled well. And they're very individualistic in their in, in, in their behavior and outlook versus the kind of government envelope, you know, postal service. There's a guy with a pith helmet who shows up and he's entitled to keep getting that check and keep that job until forever. But seizing that reform issue 
going with it involves making commitments to reform and defending reform. Are, do you really think that in the middle of this fiscal cliff is coming up in you know 30 days that you're going to hear people talking about long term why you have to fix Medicare and why some people will get less money if you fix Medicare? Yeah, not really. And that's sort of why my attitude to the fiscal cliff has been, let's just get over it. I mean, I don't think Republicans are going to win the short-term fight. I don't think mm-hmm. it's the best climate in which to introduce our longer-term ideas. It's very hard to get a hearing for that when people say, well, what do you want to do, you know, on January 2nd about the actual tax rates and the actual short-term defense cuts? That's why I've been sort of willing to cut a bad deal for the very short term to get to a longer term debate. Uh, Speaking of longer term debates, the ongoing debate about what to do in the Middle East and what America's approach should be towards defending Israel and the rising Islamism in the wake of the Arab Spring. A lot of stuff has happened the last 24 hours, both in the U.N. and in Egypt and uh, in the broader Middle East. Uh, Bill Crystal, what's going on? I mean, I don't know what the U.N. vote's depressing and the fact that the Obama administration couldn't get more than, what was it, seven or eight other nations yeah. to stand with us. Uh, and Israel is is kind of pathetic. I thought they're supposed to be the great diplomats and, and all that. But yeah, I, I just was struck. I had breakfast this morning, actually, with someone from Europe um, that does foreign policy, national security guys, been in and out of government, uh, very pro-American. And he just said, and I really agree with this, uh, he, he just doesn't remember the world getting closer to tipping into total chaos. Uh, he, he doesn't remember that in his adult lifetime than, uh, as much as this moment. Uh, you know, and I really agree with that. Uh, the degree to which uh, we look like we're retreating, we look like we're weak, we can't get the votes at the U.N., we can't shape events on the ground. Tom Donnelly has a good piece on this in the next issue of the Weekly Standard. Um, we look sort of passive at best and, and kind of just befuddled at worst. Uh, from Benghazi to 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 you know to Iran to Afghanistan, where I think the president's going to announce a much too rapid drawdown soon, which will mean that we're just getting out. Um, and the degree to which you know, I think we've sort of, over the last four years, avoided some of the worst uh, effects of President Obama's policies because we had a certain kind of capital we were drawing down. We looked right. strong still. People were intimidated by us. We did kill Bin Laden and all that. I now worry that we're getting close to a tipping point where. People around the world say, well, I guess we just forget about the U.S. And not just our enemies, but our friends. And that really is a recipe for nuclear arms races. It's a recipe for things just spiraling out of control in other countries and in other regions. It's not like in, you know, East Asia, they don't read the newspapers. And, or these days, I guess that's just how old-fashioned they are. They don't go online <laughs> and see what's happening in the Middle East. And if they think the U.S. isn't reliable there, you know, well, Japan and South Korea could just decide, you know what, we're big wealthy countries, we could have our own nuclear deterrent just in case. And, and the degree to which, you know, things can really spiral in a way that you just don't anticipate ahead of time is something that's actually the one thing that kind of keeps me up at, at night. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of things about the Obama second term we're not going to like. I think the U.S. economy will survive it. I hope the Supreme Court and the judicial system survive it. Um, the world's order, though, and the degree to which we've managed to keep things kind of in check, a uh, combination of Islamism, terrorism, nuclear proliferation. It's really a scary prospect the next four years. And then you have this notion, this image of watching people on the left really cheering as the, uh, you know, a fundamentally anti-Israeli vote of making us, you know, a U.N. quasi-state out of Palestine goes forward, watching them cheer as, well, look at America, look at America losing in the Middle East. That's a good thing. I'm going to do. You, do you see who's winning, guys? Look, I understand. Look, yeah. I'm, I'm a, uh, you know, South, South Carolina Gamecocks football fan. and I hate Clemson. They're our in-state rivals. But if Clemson were playing Hitler, you know, I'd still, I, I'd still be saying, 
oh, well, that's a bad that's team a over there. That's a big concession for you to make. It is. It is very difficult for me. But the other, I guess, South Carolina. The, the battling Nazis, if they showed up, I would say, as much as I don't like Clemson, they're worse. Does, does the European left, does the world left really, really believe that America's influence is so bad that the rise of people who behead 15-year-old girls for turning down marriage offers is a good thing? You know, I, if you ask them that question, I guess they would sort of say, oh, no, of course not. But their their actions, I would say, do not uh, suggest that they take seriously the rise of, of radical Islam. They don't. They take seriously the prospect of nuclear proliferation. I think that's probably more the answer. It's, it's less that they, you know, are cheering on the, the Nazis, to use your mm-hmm. analogy, but they kind of never think, they think the Nazis don't really have a chance to win, and, and it's fun to stand on the sidelines and say, hey, both teams are terrible, and let them, let them just fight it out, and we don't need to get involved. And I mean, there's going to be a horrible, I'm afraid, terrible wake-up call someday for an awful lot of people on the left in Europe, as, they have, as there already has been in many ways, and, and people who you know, enjoyed opposing our, our effort in Iraq and mocking the effort even in Afghanistan. And let's see how those countries look when, with the U.S. in retreat, and let's see how progressives, decent progressives in the Middle East and in the Arab world, how are they doing with the U.S. in retreat. And uh, suddenly the, the left in Europe and here is going to be sort of, um, you know, well, it'll be like after the Iranian Revolution, right? It was great getting rid of the Shah. Sure. Khomeini's a reformer, and then suddenly, you know, what happens? And, and does the left face up to the consequences of what they advocated? Incidentally, some do, and some rethink things, and some become more conservative and more hawkish and tougher-minded. And often it's amazing how much people, though, can just advocate things, and, and, and everything falls apart, and they just kind of dig their head in the sand and don't face up to the consequences of, of what, they, what they argued for. Well, uh, as someone at the uh, Atlantic Monthly, and by the way, it's very wise in a podcast for the Weekly Standard to mention the competitor. But anyway, someone tweeted out <laughs> yesterday that the uh, guy who introduced the Abbas you know, proposal was from the Sudan, the genocidal nation whose leader is wanted as a <laughs> international war criminal. And he concluded, what's not to love about the U.N.? And that's, that's, that's what a huge mess this, the world is. And that's why we'll be up at night with you, Bill Crystal. Well, thank you, Michael. Now, the U.N., you know, that would be a good conservative reform agenda. Some senators should really, you know, we talk about cutting off dues to the U.N. or even getting right. out of the U.N., but the real sort of what, you know, the current U.N. is just now not a contributor to really world peace or world mm-hmm. stability or world well-being. Uh, what kind of international organization would we want? And meanwhile, what kinds of radical reforms should we be pushing for at the U.N.? I, I would get on board that agenda if Mike Lee or Marco Rubio or some other Republican sure. senator wanted to begin that. Well, I wouldn't want to deny Susan Rice more time to spend on the Human Rights Council with those wonderful representatives of Saudi Arabia. That would be a terrible, awful thing. But we'll talk about that more in the future on a future Weekly Standard podcast. Check out weeklystandard.com regularly for updated podcasts. I am Michael Graham.